Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 352 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk about everything that went down this week across AEW and NXT and this show in particular is a bit more loaded than usual. You may ask why. Well, we were only able to cover one half of AEW Grand Slam from last week. Obviously, the show goes on Thursday. Rampage airs on Friday. Therefore, we have a two-hour AEW Rampage Grand Slam to analyze as well as everything that happened this week across AEW Dynamite and NXT. So yes, a ton of content for you on today's show, but it would not be an episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast if I did not open it with a reminder that this program So be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop that five-star rating. All you have to do is click that fifth star on Apple. You can take another 30, 60 seconds. Leave us a written review. Those are so important. If you can let people know how much you love the show, why you listen, and tell them why they should subscribe. Hopefully, it will help our subscriber and download numbers. Please, again, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop the five-star rating. Leave the review on Apple. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We just crossed the 1,200 follower threshold, which is fantastic. That is a small part of the number that we want to get to, which is 10,000 at a minimum. Um, But we're on our way there, certainly, and we appreciate you guys liking, retweeting the show. I know a lot of you prefer to like things on Twitter. Retweeting is what really shares it. So if you see something we post that you like, that you agree with, you can feel free to hit the heart button. Don't forget to hit the retweet as well. But on Twitter, we allow you guys to participate in polls around pay-per-views and premium live events. We do live shows on Twitter spaces around those events as well. We will have that all next week for WWE Extreme Rules. We also tweet live during all the major shows. We send out videos and GIFs and pictures and fun things. And we talk about news as well, the news of the day. And occasionally, we're able to break a little news or confirm a little news as well. Point is, there's every reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. As I did note at the top of the show, there's a ton for us to get to today because there is so much AEW content to cover, so many things to talk about. We're actually going to go ahead and save that for the second half of today's show, kind of get NXT out of the way a little bit. Here's the truth this week when it comes to this episode of the podcast. NXT I was not a fan whatsoever. It was the second straight taped show. I believe they're back live next week, hopefully refreshed with the white and gold brand or whatever the hell they're doing there because the concepts and and the art that they're using with that logo, with the the splashy color background from NXT 2.0, it's just, it's been very odd the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, the show was okay. This week on NXT, simply just not good. It's the best way to put it. AEW, I got to tell you, for a Dynamite coming off of a really big event, Grand Slam, I know Hurricane Ian impacted some of their plans, but it couldn't have impacted them that much because a lot of what was set for the show was announced previously. I had some issues with Dynamite as well. Really not as good of a show as I expected, especially given how hot AEW has been running on TV coming out of All Out with the CM Punk outbursts and all the shit that's gone on there. That, by the way, I don't know how long an internal investigation takes, but 
a guy said a lot of shit and then went in, was in a locker room and got into a fight. What kind of investigation needs to be done? How is this not solved? How do we as fans, as media, as viewers not know, you know, what the punishment was, what's been handed down and what the status, more important than anyone else of CM Punk is going forward with AEW. I don't see how this has not been handled. Maybe it's a lawyer situation with Punk. They're trying to work out a release clause on his contract. Potentially, I can see that. But why not address everyone else in the organization who has not been on TV now for multiple weeks? It's all very strange. Point is, Dynamite, not as good of a show as I expected. Not bad. Don't get me wrong. Not a bad show. Not as good as expected. Rampage, good and bad. It's a mixed there. We're going to break it all down on today's show. A reminder before we get into everything, on this podcast, uh, we do have timestamps in our episode description. So if you're here, if you're joining us only to listen to us talk about AEW, cool. Hit the episode description, find the timestamp. You can jump to that. Obviously, we're going to talk about NXT first, as I said, but I really do hope that you guys who listen to the show, guys, girls, dogs, cats, whoever's listening to this program, I hope you're listening to the entire thing uh, because it's good to know what's happening in every organization. I say this every single week. All right, let's get started with NXT. So Isla Dragunov opened the show. He was recalling how he beat Gunther to become champion, NXT UK champion, last time he was in America. He said Payne is his friend, and he returned to NXT in the United States to achieve his destiny and claim gold. JD McDonough called him sneaky, a dirty rat. He said he followed him to the US. They recounted their NXT UK feud. JD promised to end Isla's career if he doesn't stay on the sideline. Braun Breaker came in and literally said nothing. The crowd chanted triple threat. JD suggested that he fight the winner of Braun and Dragunov. Breaker broke out the Steiner math, kind of. I wish he had gotten more into it. He kind of half-assed it. He mentioned 33 and a third percent, didn't really say anything else. But he did break out the Steiner math, and he decided himself, apparently with no intervention from Shawn Michaels or anyone, that they will have a triple threat match. It was a fine segment. Like The good news is we're not getting a direct Breaker and McDonough rematch, which I was really concerned about. The bad news is it still doesn't really seem fresh despite Dragunov like returning and being injected into it, I guess they could pull off a title change with Braun losing, given it's a triple threat, and it would theoretically be coming around the time of the season premieres for Raw SmackDown, which usually includes a WWE draft around that period of time. So they could do something like that, but there's just so many better options, and Braun really should be in NXT for at least another year. And he should be there working without a title. It's really ridiculous that I'd have to really look it up. But I have to assume 85% or more of his tenure in NXT right now has been as NXT champion. Like, I don't know that that's the exact number, but it feels like it is. And it may even be more than that for all I know. So yeah, there's better options than kind of just doing this match and having him retain. There's better options then doing this match, having him lose and then get called up. I, I don't like either of those options, but I just, it's really tough to see the plans here unless it's just Braun beating JD to retain, which again has already happened. So that's not necessarily fresh. Halloween Havoc, they're doing as a premium live event for this to be the match on that show, the main event. You know, I think it's going to be good. The wrestling is going to be good. Braun and uh, JD, they had a good match one-on-one together. They're both good wrestlers. Dragunov's as good, if not better than both of them. So three of them, it should be an absolute banger. But again, we've said this many times on the podcast, it's one thing to have a great match. It's another to have a great match that people care about. That's what differentiates your, you know, random Raw and SmackDown match or your random high-end Dynamite match 
from like Gunther and Seamus, you know, at Clash at the Castle, right? There was reason and storyline behind it that made you care beyond the fact that it's two good wrestlers wrestling. In this case, three good wrestlers wrestling. Later backstage on NXT, Zion Quinn said all the hype about Dragunov was for nothing and that if he carried the ball, no one would be able to take it from him. Isla said, heard a lot about Zion, who had unlimited potential, but was a mental moron. I freaking loved that line. Uh, we got a match here. So Dragunov against Quinn. It was much better than it really had any right to be, mostly because of Dragunov's ability. He carried the whole thing. He had a really nice Constantine special, a sledgehammer forearm uh, right to his face, and then Torpedo Moscow for the win. Good establishment win for like the American audience who has not seen much of him. So it was a good way to, for him to get some action in front of them. Uh, then backstage wearing a Whitney Houston shirt, uh, Quincy Elliott asked Sanga what's wrong. He was upset about losing to Von Wagner. Quincy said to keep his head up and Sanga thanked him. Elliott then stopped Quinn, who was coming back from his match with Dragunov. He laughed that he didn't see an X factor in him. Fun short segment, but really not much there. I can't imagine them putting Quincy Elliott over Zion Quinn. So I'm a little surprised he went ahead and did that. We'll see if they book the match and we'll see what comes of that entire thing. Uh, Mandy Rose fought Fallon Henley in a non-title match. Mandy told Alba Fire through the camera that she'd show her what a real bad bitch looks like against Fallon. Mandy won with Kissed by the Rose. It was actually a fine match. Nothing of note really happened. Rose and Henley were kind of like carbon copies of one another in terms of like size, skill set, ability, everything in the match. It was like watching two of the same people fight, which really goes to show you that Mandy has only accomplished so much during this NXT run if Fallon Henley is almost the same as her in the ring. After the bell, Mandy called out Alba for being jealous. She said, Alba may keep fires going, but Mandy is the one who starts them. Fire then appeared on screen, lighting up something that said hashtag and new on the street, engulfing it in flames. Both parts of this were really corny, I thought. Again, I've been saying this for months now. Somehow the main event storylines for the men and women are the worst parts of NXT. It still to this day, does not make a shred of sense why your best booking and your best wrestlers, in many cases, wouldn't be involved in the main event storylines, but that has not been what's happened for a long time in NXT. Now, yes, you could definitely say, well, Silver King, look, we have McDonough, Dragunov, and now Alba Fire, the former Kaylee Ray, all contending for these titles, and they're all great wrestlers. You're totally right about that, 100%. But McDonough's gimmick sucks, as we've already talked about. Drogonov kind of just inserted himself into it. And it's not bad that he did, but there's also really no storyline there. Alba Fire, I do like the fact that she's now going after Mandy Rose. And I have to believe we've been talking about it for months. She needs to be the one to take the title off Mandy. But there's really not a lot of storyline here, especially because I think Mandy already beat her. So it's just like, I want the championship and I'm coming after you. And Mandy's like, well, you set fires. And Alba's like, yeah, I do set fires. And I'm like, <laughs> that's I mean, that's all it is. Like her gimmick is setting fires. With her, using her bat, by the way, as as like the agent, you know, to, to set the fire. It's kind of just like, all right, man. Like I get it's part of your name. It doesn't have to be your entire gimmick that you're a pyro. Like it's just, it's weird to me. Anyway, Caden uh, Carter fought Nikita Lyons. Nikita hit the single best move of her entire career, a split-legged Michinoku driver for a near fall. Very cool spot for her. Uh, she caught Carter coming off the ropes, uh, hitting a roundhouse kick and a split-legged slam cover uh, for the relatively dominant win in the match. This was probably the best she's looked in the ring. 
I maintain that watching her wrestle is an odd experience. It seems like everything she does takes a lot of extra effort to make it happen. Maybe it's because she's a bigger woman doing moves that smaller women normally do. Perhaps that could be part of it. But there's just something off about her to me, and I I can't necessarily put my finger on it. And I really do question the booking here to have a newly crowned tag team champion get beat that easily. I mean, I I gave the same criticism to AEW. They put the, the trio's title on Death Triangle, and what have we gotten? We got the Lucha Bros losing a match, uh, uh, Pac cheating badly to win a match, and Ray Phoenix losing a match in the last couple of weeks. So like, I mean, you can't crown new champions and then treat them like dog shit in booking. It doesn't really make sense. And that's what happens here. We'll see how it actually plays out. Later backstage, Nikita and Zoe Stark were confident they would go out and win the tag team title soon. Toxic Attraction stepped up to talk shit. They had a three-on-two advantage of them, like in the parking lot area. All of a sudden, Alba appears out of nowhere. She lights up a line between the teams with fire again. Total pyro here. Like, her bat just is, was it magical? Or like, what are they doing? Or does she like spread lines of gasoline places just happen to work out? where she's able to walk around, tap her bat there, and all of a sudden it lights up on fire. Anyway, she did it, creating a, quote, line in the stand type of deal. Toxic jumped into an SUV and left. Like I said, the fire stuff, it's kind of eye-rolling. We get it. It's her name. Okay, we can stop with it. She's not a sorceress, right? Uh, I forgot the woman, uh, Melisandra, Melisandra from Game of Thrones. She's not that. So just let her, like, be about fire and don't make it her entire personality. That's the best way. I can put it. Uh, Wes Lee fought Tony D'Angelo in a North American Championship ladder match qualifier. Wade Barrett called out Wesley on commentary for being a dumb babyface and not taking the free qualifying spot. Thank you. Right. Like, that's great. And it was good that a heel commentator called him out on that because, yeah, sure, it was a big babyface move to do it. But if you think about it in kayfabe, it's really stupid not to just take a free shot at a ladder match, especially when you need to be healthy for that ladder match. Anyway, uh, Stax went into the ring for no reason whatsoever and shoved Wes Lee. So the referee just ejected Stax. No DQ, nothing. A couple minutes into the match, D'Angelo took a drop toe hold header into the middle turnbuckle. He immediately went down on the canvas and struggled to get back to his feet. He stumbled, the referee threw up an X, and the bell was rung as a referee stoppage, giving Wesley the win, allowing him to advance. This was real, not kayfabe, just to be clear. And they kept it on TV, which I thought was interesting. At first blush, I thought it was a concussion. I think, I mean, his head slammed into a turnbuckle and he got woozy. You're like, oh, it's a concussion. But it actually wasn't. He grabbed his right knee immediately as soon as it banged on the canvas. And, you know, I think at first blush, a lot of people would say, oh, ligament, torn ACL, meniscus, something like that, gone. I don't know that it was. It kind of looked like like a dislocated kneecap or something less severe in the moment where you still have to cancel the match. But I don't necessarily know that he's going to be out long time. I did uh, reach out to a few people. None of them really came back with any information. Uh, what I'm told is he's still listed as active on the internal roster. That, that was the only information I had. So it sucks for him, obviously. But, you know, I don't think that he was going to win the match anyway, given that Stax was ejected. That was the plan. So I have to believe Wesley was going to come out on top. I don't think it affected booking. You know, you never want to see anyone hurt. That's really the key. If this was a long-term injury, I would say, you know, maybe like it's a bit of a blessing in disguise, right? Because this Tony D'Angelo gimmick, it's worn out. It's welcome. Like two dimes is already gone. If D'Angelo does happen to be out for an extended period of time, it would be great for Stax to like 
get something fresh, do his own thing, D'Angelo to come back with a more appropriate gimmick, something with longevity, because the shelf life on this is just too short. It may have worked in NXT 2.0, but you bring this to the main roster, I mean, unless he's going to be like an Elias type of character or a low-card comedy type of heel, I don't know how you just bring like a mafioso character in 2022 or 2023 maybe by the time he gets called up and it fits in with what's going on there, what Triple H is doing across Raw and SmackDown. I don't see it. So yeah, I mean, I hope it's short. Obviously, I hope he's not seriously injured. He's back soon. But if for some reason it is long-term, I do hope they use it as an opportunity. That's the best way I can put it. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams were backstage talking their talk as usual when Oro Mensa stepped up. Melo said he respected his game, but at Halloween Havoc, it was every man for himself. Really not much to this. It was just a nice interaction between competitors. Uh, Chase U had a pep rally celebrating Andre Chase getting a qualifying match next week against Von Wagner. A reporter named Dave asked Chase if he was confident because he's never beaten Wagner before. So Chase absolutely goes off on him, screaming, asking if he thought it was a five-star question, using a bunch of other wrestling terms like working towns and how this person had no experience doing all those things. And then all the students yelled at the guy as well. Obviously, this was a tongue-in-cheek call out to Dave Meltzer, perfectly executed, really damn funny segment. It is concerning to me a little bit that Chase is facing Wagner, given how much certain people in WWE like Vaughn. Now, that said, they've cooled off on him significantly, but you look at these two and there's a drastic difference in terms of like size and what you would think WWE believes the ceiling is for them. But Wagner absolutely should not be in this North American Championship ladder match. I know that there's something to be said for having one big guy to be a base for a bunch of moves. I would much rather see Chase in this spot. He got the win over Mello clean last week. That should be the first step, giving him the bona fides to deserve a title challenge. So hopefully they follow through with that. Otherwise, his win over Mello last week, it's almost completely worthless at that point. Unless Mello wins the title and then Chase gets a title match, which then putting the title back on Mello a third time. I mean, Mox, you know, talk about Mox getting the title three times, Mello getting it three times, and not being able to move up when it's not the top title is just ridiculous. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Nathan Frazier announced as part of a video package that his rubber match with Axiom will be the final North American Championship ladder match qualifying entry. He compared the one-on-one tie in their series to such a tie in a soccer match and said he's used to breaking ties by scoring. It was fine. Um, A great booking move, I will say. We called on this last week. This is what we wanted. NXT followed through. This is the right booking. Uh, I, I, you know, Frazier needs to win. He needs to be in the match. It's as simple as that. He's the most exciting wrestler, probably, in terms of in-ring ability in NXT, one of probably the most exciting in the entire company, just on, just based on what he can actually do inside the squirrel, squared circle between the ropes, over the ropes, the whole deal. Um, you know what? They could even have him win this match. I, I doubt they go that far. Would I be upset? Absolutely not. I think that would be a great way to crown him and kind of put him up on a pedestal, make him an upper mid-carder. It would make a lot of sense. The crowd loves him. The gimmick's good. Um, the entrance is good. The name is... People crapped on the name initially. I think the name is good too. Everything about him. Total package. Definitely him. Uh, very young. I mean, the comparison is super easy, obviously, because he's his trainer and mentor, but a super young British Seth Rollins. You can see it. The potential is there, and I'd love to see them go with it here. Uh, Gallus had a scheduled match against Briggs and Jensen. It was a pub rules match. The guys all brawled backstage early. 
Later, they got into it with security, and Joe Coffey headbutted a security guard, which got him barred from ringside for the match. That made it a clean two-on-two bout. Gallus beat the faces with their belts. Then the tables turned. Briggs and Jensen smashed breakaway glass over their heads, dumped Mark Coffey upside down in a trash can. Joe Coffey ran back, and even though he was barred from ringside, uh, he took a shot through a table. Wolfgang tried to make a save, but got tossed into a table, and then they hit Mark with the high-low finisher for the win. So let me get this straight. They had Briggs and Jensen, Again, <laughs> low ceiling, Briggs and Jensen take out freaking Gallus, basically two on three with relative ease. The crowd was either exhausted or they felt like me and they were just taken out of the match. It was slow, laborious. It lacked anything worth being excited about. The stipulation was basically a street fight with weapons at ringside, but nothing about it said pub rules. I mean, yeah, they used the glasses at the end, but until that it was Regular weapons, you would think there would be bar signs, billiard sticks, a dartboard, something. This is something that should have been taped off-site, especially since they knew that they were doing a taped show. Rent out a bar and just destroy it. Like, that's what you do. And then you pay them, you know, on the the back end for it. Instead, we got regular trash cans, steel chairs, and tables. That's a street fight. It's not a pub rules match. Uh, Think about the Donnybrook match that they did over in NXT. Or think about the Viking rules match. I, I said NXT, I'm sorry. The Donnybrook or the Viking Rules matches that they did recently on SmackDown. Both of them were thematic. It doesn't take a lot to do that. And they just kind of half-assed it here. That's the best way I can put it. After the match, the referees and security tried to get Gallus out of the ringside area. Wolfgang punched a security guard. And then Joe hit a referee with a knockout punch. Police came down to arrest them. And NXT went off the air. It was announced after the show that they've been suspended indefinitely. I just thought it was really kind of the best part of the entire thing. Um... Because look, Briggs and Jensen beat them clean. So like, where exactly is this going to go? Them freaking out and getting arrested? Really not the worst way to kind of do it. So I am interested to see like how this progresses. I assume maybe there's going to be another stipulation match between these groups at Halloween Havoc. But even then, what else could they do? They just did a weapons match. So you're going to do a steel cage? Eh, it doesn't really seem like it's stepping it up much. So I guess we will find out. Brutus Creed had a scheduled match with Damon Kemp. There was a new hard rock type of entrance theme uh, that they gave Kemp. It just seemed kind of ill-fitting. Brutus got tripped into the middle turnbuckle, so he pounced Kemp. That pissed him off, so Kemp grabbed a chair and just beat the shit out of Brutus with it for a blatant disqualification. Somehow, three referees made it out, but Brutus' own brother, Julius, didn't, despite us seeing him backstage moments earlier, getting Brutus ready for the match. Didn't make a shred of sense. Why would you build this match up? have it last a couple minutes and end in a DQ just so you can get to Kemp and Julius. Why is Kemp and Julius necessarily a better match? I mean, for me it is because Julius is the star between him and Brutus. He's the one who has the singles opportunity like long-term, but why not just let Kemp beat Brutus clean, attack him after the match with the chair, and then you have Julius come out and make the save, and then you set up that match for next week or whenever you want to do it. I thought watching these two guys who basically look like human bowling balls would be fun. And instead, it was hugely disappointing. Maybe the most disappointed I was on the entire show. A Pretty Deadly had a comedy vignette showing their daily routine, including not hitting the gym super early, having breakfast in bed together, choosing outfits, grooming, light training in the afternoon, and going to bed together. It was hysterical. Probably should have been done when they first came over, but it definitely helped educate fans who still didn't know about them from NXT UK, but are now tuning in and they're the overall NXT tag team champions. The funny thing about Pretty Deadly is you just don't know 
like what their relationship is. It's it's ambiguous, right? Um, it's kind of in some ways like the ambiguously gay duo from Saturday Night Live, where they they make insinuations and they do this. You know, they go to bed together. They're they're uh, grooming each other. You know, uh, brushing each other's hair. You're like, oh, maybe they're homosexual. And then they do things where you're kind of like, oh, they're just operating as two guys who are just really close friends, maybe a little bit more uh, Zoolander-esque, perhaps, in some ways, right? Uh, so they're platonic. They're just, they just happen to be friends. So you just don't know exactly what their deal is. And that's what makes them so interesting, in addition to just the comedy aspect of the entire thing. They could come up to the main roster tomorrow and be, for lack of a better term, the new Brizongo, right? The, the comedy, low-card tag team that has fun, does skits, and does all that. But they have a much higher ceiling because they're really good in the ring. They're good promos. I'm not saying Brizango wasn't, but uh, they were made comedy that these guys pretty deadly are not. They just happen to be comedic. And that to me is what makes them so great and separates them and, and puts them apart from a lot of other acts in NXT and really in wrestling altogether. So I, I don't, I don't love that they're champions again. I thought that was the wrong decision, but I love that they're getting featured on NXT. They're getting time. And I could definitely see a year from now, them being on the main roster, a legitimate tag team involved in the title picture. That would be really cool. Cameron Grimes fought Joe Gacy. Schism said in a really weird video package, the limbs of their tree that had reached out to Grimes will now bind him and make an example out of him. It sucked as usual. The dyad stood between Grimes and Gacy outside. So Grimes jumped over them with a running cannonball off the apron. Grimes set up for the cave-in when the dyad both distracted, one on the apron, one in the ring. Gacy then caught Grimes with his handspring lariat finisher for the win. I know it was a one-on-three disadvantage. I get it. But this was like less than five minutes. After sitting through this shitty storyline for two months now, it didn't even pay off with a decent match. Like, yeah, okay, I know. Maybe they're going to have another rematch or something. I don't want another rematch. We know Gacy is at least capable in the ring. We saw, even though I hated the storyline he had with Braun Breaker, they actually put on a decent match at the end of the day. But this man, holy shit, it's getting actively worse by the week and there seems to be no stopping it. This storyline, this gimmick, this group, it is the worst thing in NXT history. It is taking three people, all of whom have potential, a group in the Grizzle, a team I should say, in the Grizzle Young Veterans who were doing perfectly fine as a tag team with their gimmick and they just took away everything that was cool and unique about them. Joe Gacy, who it seemed like had something to latch onto initially, they got scared because of initial blowback that was totally exaggerated. They took him in a totally different direction, making him a, what is it, great value is the Walmart brand, a great value version of Bray Wyatt. And now they have Bray Wyatt coming back. So what's the point of even doing this with Joe Gacy? The whole thing sucks. It needs to be all, these guys all need to be off TV for three months. They need to completely get repackaged and brought back. This is a absolute Total zero. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. And you cannot say the Silver King is not consistent because I have hated this from the very beginning. Wendy Chu and Lash Legend had a dueling video package ahead of their match next week. It was actually pretty great. One of my favorite things that we got on NXT. I like both of them, so I was already anticipating the match, but this actually got me excited for it. Wendy remains massively overrated. I cannot believe they had her as Mei Ying this whole time. She can talk. She's a great character actress and she can go in the ring. I love her gimmick. Lash 
really seems to be finding her groove. Her career started rough. And I think there's a lot of people who kind of refuse to admit that. Those first couple of months of Lash Legend, they were bad. I mean, forget like the talk show stuff. In ring, she was not good. She is progressing bit by bit. She's not quite as good as Wendy and she isn't making moves like, you know, Tiffany Stratton or anything like that. But she is taking positive steps and she is going to be someone who should be reckoned with in NXT and, you know, as part of the WWE women's roster. So I love that they're going head to head. I'm a little concerned because it seems like a spot where Lash should probably win, but you just had Wendy beat Tiffany Stratton to end their feud, and they haven't really capitalized on that. In fact, I believe Wendy's already lost a match. So it just feels like Legend's going to win. I don't love that, but I did love the promo package, and I am excited for the match next week. Apollo Crews got a video package promo where he talked about getting vengeance for Grayson Waller, trying to hurt his vision. Then he called him a bitch. It was convoluted as hell. We're a few months into this. The gimmick is still confusing. It's all over the place. And beyond that, it's just not good. Somehow, it's worse than the Nigerian gimmick he had on the main roster. Like when he first came into NXT and got that huge pop, I was like, wow, this is so cool. They're going to do something awesome with Apollo Crews. It's been downhill ever since that first night. Waller was later freaked out by Cruz's visions, so he decided to hire extra security for next week. Uh, Sol Rucka fought Amari Miller. Sol's entrance was basically a straight-up ripoff of the song Wipeout. Um, it was also her debut match on regular NXT as opposed to Level Up. She hit an X-Factor and showed off her athleticism with a lot of flips. Way too many flips, by the way. She should uh, cut those by 50%, I would say. Uh, her finisher was a rope-assisted somersault leg drop, like double leg drop, into the opponent's chest. Or actually, I think in this case, it was into her back because she was on her stomach, but it could probably go either way. It would be far better as a signature move than a finisher. It's just not good enough to end matches, so hopefully they rethink that. She did flash, I will say. I did compare her previously to Stratton. That It's there. The collegiate athleticism, the experience, uh, being super green and raw. I would say Stratton was far more impressive in her first match than Rucka was. She's just not ready for TV. And yes, by the way, she was a baby face. So just for anyone wondering. So yeah, that was it from NXT this week. Like, you know, a couple things to, that, you know, were solid and, and worth pointing out. I do like the direction that some uh, storylines are going, particularly in the mid card. And with the women's division, the person who is challenging, I do hope is the one who ultimately wins the title. But yeah, top to bottom, really lackluster show, left a lot to be desired. They do get a little bit of a break because it was the second straight taped episode and they seem to be in the midst of a transition. If we come back next week with a live episode of NXT with new sets, new color scheme, the whole deal, and storylines progress and they're headed in the right direction going into Halloween Havoc, then this one we can forget about and we say, hey, you know what? Bad episode, but those happen. If it's the start of a trend, that obviously will be a concern. We're not going to know that until we get to next week. So let us move over to AEW, where we are going to start with Rampage Grand Slam. Now, we're not going to go ahead and do this in order. I'm just going to talk about the biggest things that happened. And normally, what I would do is mix you know, content that happens from Rampage with the big storylines from AEW Dynamite. That way, it's all kind of together. But because it was a two-hour show that was a special event, we're going to do it separate this week. We're going to talk uh, AEW, Rampage, Grand Slam, a lot of words there I'm trying to remember, and then we will cover AEW Dynamite afterward, that way we can discuss how what happened on Rampage, you know, pertained to Dynamite, storylines going forward for other special TV show episodes coming up, and of course, I think the next pay-per-view is Full Gear, that's still a decent ways out, but you know, some of this certainly will 
have to do with that in the long term. One thing I will note, just because I, I just mentioned TV specials, uh, you know, Grand Slam, I know, was another name branded, you know, TV special. I don't think they have any more scheduled upcoming. So it makes it even stranger that they did however many it was, like six in that eight week window. And now all of a sudden there's none going forward. If you space them out, people are going to get more excited about them. If you throw them all together, we've talked about it, then none of them are really that special. So I did find that to be a little bit interesting when I realized that this was Grand Slam and I started looking ahead and I'm like, oh, there's no special name branded, um, you know, Dynamite's coming up. So there you go. Even though some of the shows are being heavily promoted, including the one in Cincinnati, of course, which is John Moxley's homecoming. All right. Let's get into Rampage Grand Slam. As I said, there was a golden ticket battle royal uh, on Rampage two weeks ago. Hangman Adam Page apologized to Dark Order for costing them the trio's titles, but Dark Order was excited to be in the battle royal with all of them having a chance to win a world title shot. Jose and Roosh reminded Ten they wanted him in their group, and then Roosh shit-talked Hangman in Spanish for a little bit. So moving over to Grand Slam, Hangman was making his entrance. He was the first one out when... Roosh attacked him, and then everyone else just came down and brawled and stuff. They went to commercial. They came back. Uh, Brian Cage, Dalton Castle, and Lance Archer were notable people who were in the match. Castle actually eliminated Cage. Lee Moriarty, like, half-climbed over the ropes himself and then just got eliminated. It was weird. Matt Hardy and Private Party hugged, but all three of them got eliminated. Pentagon eliminated Archer. That left Penta, Hangman, Jay Lethal, and Roosh as the final four. I assumed at that point that Hangman was going to win. Penta threw Lethal outside, but Satnam Singh caught him clean. It was actually the best thing that Singh's ever done. Penta ate Lethal Injection and just got eliminated because of course he is, because God forbid they do anything with Pentagon. Uh, Hangman got Lethal out with a lariat. Hangman also accidentally slipped and he almost fell off the apron unplanned, but he saved himself. Uh, he then hit Roosh with Deadeye on the apron for the win. This was an awful battle royal, especially by AEW standards, because they've actually put on some really good ones before, including the two, the two ring battle royal wasn't really that great. I forgot what that was called. The um, Rumble Royal, Rampage Rumble, whatever the hell that was. Um, it wasn't that good, but the finish was really good here. It, this whole thing was just a mess and the people that were involved didn't really make a lot of sense. And, you know, having Hangman Page win, while it's great because he's one of their top guys, what's he done recently to really get you excited about him? Not that much. Um, again, nothing redeemable about it. The wrestling was bad. Some of the spots were bad. There were a couple that were good. Page winning was obvious. That was really the, the big takeaway from it, given Roosh had already fought John Moxley. So once you get to the final two, you're like, Oh, all right, that's what it is. TV also cut away from the celebration after a couple of seconds. So the viewer couldn't even like soak it in. This is Hangman Page, one of your top baby faces, and your viewer at home doesn't even get to like actually enjoy it. I still don't even know, candidly, why they needed to be a golden ticket battle royal when someone already has the casino chip and they have a ranking system. So like I know that they're maybe going away from the rankings a little bit. Just, man, do a number one contendership match. Do a gauntlet. Do a fatal four-way. Do something different than just another battle royal. To me, it was a total waste of time. Powerhouse Hobbs fought Ricky Starks in a lights-out match two weeks ago on Rampage. Starks said that the factory getting involved in his business threw him off his game. That's why he lost to Hobbs so easily. Really shitty excuse. The whole promo from Starks lasted 15 seconds. Let the guy who can talk, you know, talk. As far as the match... Uh, it came from commercial break. Uh, there were chairs and tables in the ring. It was only then that commentary reminded us that it was a lights out match. I didn't realize it. Maybe that's my fault, but I, again, it just kind of happened. Uh, so 
going to Rampage Grand Slam in the match itself. Starks ate a backdrop into uh, the backs of two chairs that were set up together. Then he got thrown headfirst into the set. Hobbs ripped the light off the entrance. Starks dodged it and then speared Hobbs into an upturned table. When Hobbs stood up, Starks hit him over the head with the light and then hit Rochambeau for the win. It was a good match, really solid way for Starks to get his win back. I wish they had just done this at all out as opposed to done the squash and then done the set grand slam. To have this main event at like 11.45 as the last match on the card really didn't do it justice, but I did like how Hobbs was protected in the finish, yet Starks was able to get over by outsmarting him and beating him clean. I went 3.75 stars in a B plus. I, I was very, uh, very much entertained and I enjoyed this match. Uh, Darby Allen and Sting fought House of Black in a no disqualification match, which by the way is basically the same as a lights out match. Uh, on Dynamite Grand Slam, there was a vignette of Darby dragging someone in a body bag through the streets, the subway and into a cab. He told the driver he was going to a funeral. Like, I get the concept, but he's in a tag team match. So why is he dragging one body? And why is he dragging a body at all? I just, it's stupid. All of his vignettes are basically stupid. Uh, Darby hit Brody King with an avalanche code red. Sting got pushed off the top rope. His body crashed through one table and his head careened and smacked off another table so hard that he actually cracked the table. He got a hard way cut by that. Julia Hart then handcuffed Sting. Darby climbed a set piece and hit Buddy Matthews with a huge falling coffin drop. Darby and Brody then tumbled off the stage into a couple of tables. Buddy sat Sting in a chair in the ring. He was going to crack him over the head with his own bat when suddenly the lights went out and the great Muda entered. Muda looked towards Sting first. Then he took out Buddy with a dragon screw and the poison green mist. Buddy backed into Julia Hart, who flew off the apron over a table. She nearly hit her head on the top of a barricade. Sting somehow broke the handcuffs and he hit the scorpion death drop on Buddy for the win. Then he and Muda shook hands. I saw people losing their minds over this on Friday. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was cool to see the great Muda hit in AEW. There's no question about that. But this was an absolute slop fest. Sting nearly concussed himself. Darby was all lacerated taking the stage dive. Julia could have killed herself taking a totally unnecessary bump that was not set up well. I mean, to each their own. I know some people love this stuff. It's not for me. I'm done with Sting at this point. It's the same thing over and over. It's like missionary position every single night. It's the same thing over and over and over. It's like missionary position every single night. (laughs) And the tribal chief, the head of the table, we're not interested in that. No, no. I'm not. I'm not interested in it anymore. I don't need to see Sting risk his life at age... You know, 63, you don't need to be Terry Funk, man. Like, be there. Be alongside Darby. Occasionally wrestle. Occasionally do something that is unique and exciting. How about, like, can Sting wrestle a singles match? Like, I know he's slow and and older and stuff, and they're trying to, like, protect him in terms of not exposing him due to his age. But when he gets in the ring, he has those, like, five-minute bursts where he can really go still. So let him do that. I don't need him taking risks and I don't need him alongside Darby Allen anymore. In fact, I'm at the point where I think Sting being alongside Darby is like a crutch where it's actually hindering Darby. They need to do the breakup angle. They need Darby to go over Sting and, and, you know, give him that victory and allow him to progress himself into a further upper mid-card echelon in AEW because 
man, he used to be one of their featured guys. And now again, it's missionary position. It's the same thing. Every feud they're in is the same thing. It starts with one of them. It becomes both of them. It's a tag team match. It gets hardcore. Sting jumps off something. It's repetitive. I'm, I'm really getting done with it. Uh, Ray Phoenix fought Jungle Boy. Uh, Jungle Boy hit a great Poison Rana that Phoenix completely no-sold for an immediate cutter response. Chris Jericho had a great swingers reference on commentary during this match. Jungle Boy seemed to hit like a super kick whenever there was any type of transition in offense. Speaking of like Sol Rucka's flips, Jungle Boy can do 50% fewer super kicks. Uh, Phoenix got a great gory cutter. Phoenix then did a cool Escalera springboard splash. Jungle Boy did a sunset flip powerbomb out of the corner. Phoenix came back with two of three amigos and a big frog splash. Jungle Boy was on Phoenix's shoulders in the finish, but countered him into a cradle pinning combination for the victory. After the bell, they both sat on the mat, shook hands, and hugged. Christian Cage's music hit, and he came out in an arm sling. Jungle Boy recognized Luchasaurus trying to attack him from behind, but was unable to stop him. Christian called the crowd and JB bitches, saying he injured him before their match, and that's why it went down the way it did. That was not true. He gave Jungle Boy a final warning not to come back next week. Luchasaurus then choke slammed him to end the segment. So match uh, was great from an athleticism and ring work standpoint, 4.25 stars and an A. I just never really felt it got to a second level, but the result came a bit suddenly as well. So I, I can't really go too high on a grade, but it, it was very, very good. Entertaining, best match of the night. Uh, Jungle Boy had to win given the extended storyline, but I mentioned this earlier, it's another example of a Lucha Bros member losing a signature match. It's also the second time one of them in particular has lost since winning the trio's titles. Endlessly tiring and frustrating. The post-match, it just felt repetitive and it did nothing to further that storyline. What it did, actually, it made Jack look bad immediately after a win. So he had this great moment where he kind of could have been on top and they could have done this next week where they say, hey, yeah, sure, you beat Ray Phoenix, but you can't beat Luchasaurus and you can't, you still have me to deal with and all this type of shit. Instead, they went from big moment for Jungle Boy to disaster, absolutely destroyed by Luchasaurus. And to me, it just felt unnecessary to do that. Eddie Kingston fought Sammy Guevara on Rampage two weeks ago. Eddie Kingston cut a taped promo saying he didn't like or respect Sammy, so he'd beat the piss out of him in Queens. Now, this was an entire sudden build to their match at Grand Slam. Uh, Sammy had a new comic book entrance package, and before the bell, Sammy grabbed the mic and apologized for not saying sooner that Eddie's a fat piece of shit. This called back to a real beef that they had backstage over Sammy saying that in a promo without Eddie's permission, apparently. It led to a confrontation. Both of them got suspended. Their scheduled match for All Out got canceled, and they ended up doing it here. I didn't mind that they did it here and they played off that controversy because, I mean, not to quote Eric Bischoff, controversy creates cash. But, you know, I'm glad that they still kind of followed through with the storyline and did it. I wish they had focused a little bit more on the storyline as it had been built, as opposed to the backstage stuff that really the internet community knew more than the people who are more casual fans of the product. Anyway, Kingston hit a half and half suplex and three spinning back fists. Then he put Sammy in a headlock chokehold for the knockout win. Eddie refused to release the hold after the bell. Jerry Lynn came down, as did a bunch of security and officials, but he kept it locked in. So the referee in charge of the match reversed the decision, giving Sammy the win. Eddie then let go and hit everyone in the ring except for Lynn. I both loved and hated this. The post-match angle was great with Eddie snapping everyone coming down, all that. But the match was over. Reversing the decision is absurd. It's like in college football when a win is vacated. It doesn't make any sense. 
The game happened. The match happened. The referee should have had discretion to suspend Kingston or something, but not change the match result. There were two bells. They rang. In between both of them, the guy lost. He got knocked out. It's as simple as that. Now, if this was a replay situation where Eddie cheated to win the match, then okay, you could say then, you know, maybe there's some kayfabe logic to going ahead and reversing the match result. But in this case, there was absolutely none, even if he did something despicable after the bell. I did like that commentary explained how Tony Khan wants the referees to exercise more authority because the AEW referees, as we've talked about, it's been one of our criticisms of the company since it existed. They're pathetic. They're terrible, uh, both in kayfabe and in reality. So we will see if this plays out in future storylines and future situations. They did not address it on Dynamite. We'll see really what happens going forward. I also thought they could have addressed a Kingston suspension or something on Dynamite, even if they didn't do anything with the referees or they didn't have them on screen, but they just didn't. They kind of just let the entire thing go. Samoa Joe and Wardlow fought Tony Nese and Josh Woods on Rampage two weeks ago. There was an ROH TV title match, Samoa Joe against Woods. Uh, Joe hit the muscle buster to retain the title. After the bell, Nice attacked Joe. Wardlow made the save as Joe held Mark Sterling's leg so he couldn't run away. Wardlow was ready to powerbomb Sterling when Woods distracted and Nice saved Sterling. Joe and Wardlow stood face to face for a moment. Instead of fighting, they clinked their titles together. Now, if that sounds familiar, let's get to what happened at Grand Slam because Joe hit the muscle buster on Nice for the win. Woods attacked after the bell. Wardlow made the save. Sterling tried to use the TNT title to break up a powerbomb. Instead, Wardlow was unfazed by it, and he hit three powerbombs on Sterling and then clinked the titles with Joe again after the bell. Like, what am I supposed to say here? It, it's bad. Like, it's just the same thing twice in a row. One was a tag team match. One was a singles match. Look, I just hope there's something better ahead for both of these guys, Wardlow and Samoa Joe. Uh, there was a report that Samoa Joe was supposed to be on Dynamite, but could not due to the hurricane. Understandable that he wasn't there. Wardlow, nowhere to be seen which again, he's your TNT champion. He was at a point, one of the most over baby faces in your company. And you just have nothing for him still, even now. TBS championship was defended. Jade Cargill against Diamante on Rampage two weeks ago. Uh, Jade Cargill and the baddies put her over for beating everyone in the locker room when Diamante interrupted and challenged her for Grand Slam. I know Jade has beaten a lot of people, but she has not fought everyone in the locker room, let alone like the top five women in the company. So it was a weird claim. On Dynamite Grand Slam, they did the same segment before Diamante brought her friend in from the 305, who was Trina. I mean, that popped me because I'm from South Florida, but man, like Fabulous and DJ Wukid, she's been irrelevant for over a decade. Really random and strange appearance. To be fair, she is the baddest bitch historically, so it did fit the promotion. So on Rampage Grand Slam, Jade fought Diamante. She ended the match in two or three minutes with Jaded. This was all the time the women got on a two-hour rampage. On four hours of Grand Slam, I believe they got 12 total minutes of in-ring time. Then Trina lifts Diamante after the bell, slaps her, shakes Jade's hand, and raises her arms. This was just fucking awful stuff. That is one big pile of shit. We had Hook and Action Bronson against Matt Menard and Angelo Parker in a celebrity match. Fans chanted for Bronson. Most of what he did, you or I could do with no training. But he did hit a really nice running power slam. That was his most notable move. He also, in the finish, did stereo red rum with Hook for the submission, and that ended in about five minutes. Seeing what Bad Bunny, Logan Paul, Pat McAfee have done in WWE, 
it's really raised the bar to what I would call a totally unfair level for celebrity wrestling appearances. Bronson in a vacuum here, he was good. And it was fun to see him in the ring, but it certainly wasn't anything special. I also thought Hook was a bit exposed during this match. He couldn't run the ropes. He struggled doing a number of other things. When it comes to suplexes and mat-based moves, he's nails. He has the same ability as his father. But when it comes to everything else that has to do with wrestling, he is still extremely limited, which to me makes it so strange that he gets so much television time. But I did think this was a well-placed celebrity match and credit to Action Bronson. He got in there. He did the work. No botches. He did exactly what he needed to do. And again, you can't hold them to the same level as people like Bad Bunny, Logan Paul, and Pat McAfee. They are arguably three of the best celebrity wrestlers of all time. And I think there's a lot of people who would say in some order, they're one, two, and three. And they're all recent. So it's just very, very difficult to put them on the same level. So I do give Action Bronson a lot of credit. He was me in the ring. He did what I could do, most likely. And I was jealous because I wish I was in that spot, even though I am nowhere near a celebrity at all, let alone one at the level of Action Bronson. So credit to him, uh, big ups to him. So let's, that, that's Rampage Grand Slam. As you can tell, uh, didn't love it. You know, it, very similar to Dynamite Grand Slam in that there were a couple moments that were really, really good and totally worth watching. And I'm glad I saw the show, but there was also a lot that just felt like a regular Rampage, not special, and in many ways, bad. So with that, let's move over to AEW Dynamite. Uh, there were two matches on Dynamite, one a title match, one an eliminator that came out of nowhere. Now, AEW, to their credit, did a really good job explaining the reasoning for both matches taking place. But it was blatantly obvious that Tony Khan took offense to people asking about the booking and that they did these explanations in depth solely because of fan reaction. Now, it's good that they listened to the fans and did this, but my problem with Tony Khan in this is he acts offended as if everyone should know these things, but hey, if you don't, we'll go ahead and give you your, your video packages so you can stop bitching about it. That's, that's really not how like the promoter should be treating the entire thing. It should be, hey, these two matches are happening. Here's why we're gonna explain it to you more on TV if you need it. And, and honestly, maybe they should have posted those video packages and promos on social media. That way the fans could know going into the show a little bit more about it. Both matches did have totally legit reasons for taking place, as I said. Unlike some others that we've seen previously where Tony just grabs someone from another organization and throws them into a match on AEW TV. So if annoying Tony is enough to force him to do Wrestling Booking 101, like explaining why certain matches are being held, then at the end of the day, it's all worth it. So let's get into everything that happened on Dynamite. Wheeler Yuta came down before MJF segment saying they have a problem. Yuta was standing up for Tony Schiavone and dared MJF to fight him in his own city of Philadelphia. He said MJF hides behind groups and the mic and he never fights. MJF entered and did his normal shtick, shitting on Philly. He said Yuta is indeed a great wrestler, but he's also a charisma vacuum and he was killing AEW by wasting time on the mic in the ring. Yuta screamed back, threatening to leave him in a pool of blood because bad things happen in Philly. Gun Club came out to get MJF's back and he actually accepted the challenge for next week in Washington, D.C., and then Gun Club did his catchphrase for him. Now, this was far better than what we got last week. Yuta was at least more believable on the mic here. The content of the promo, though, actually made MJFs less impactful because Yuta basically did the B-Rabbit thing from 8 Mile by calling out everything MJF was going to say before he said it. This is another instance, though, in AEW of one wrestler cutting off the ankles or I guess kneecaps is really the term, of another opponent before they get the chance to speak. 
Now with Yuta, it's probably all he could have done to come close to hanging with MJF on the mic. So credit to them doing it in this particular situation. But this happens all the time where someone comes out like, you're gonna say this, you're always about this. And then someone comes out and they really don't have anything else to say because that person already cut them off at the knees. So in this one spot, I'll give him a little bit of a break. You know, credit to you for being a little bit better, but it was so forced. Like you can see him almost like stressing his face, his neck, his chest to like show passion and show energy when it's just not natural at all for him. But hey, the guy's still young. Maybe he figures it out at some point down the line. Uh, At Brett underscore Malam wrote in, he said, the MJF thing is weird to me to go from his version of a pipe bomb to that being resolved over a voicemail. And now he's feuding with Wheeler Yuta. Just feels like a wasted opportunity in my opinion. So there's a good point to be made regarding how he returned. And he went out, you know, with a blaze of glory and you theoretically want him to come back in the same way. And he didn't because the way they booked that whole thing at All Out, we already discussed it. You can go listen to the All Out Instant Analysis and the post-Dynamite show, the one after a couple of weeks ago to hear our take on that. So yeah, you can, I will admit and agree that was not handled well. But I have zero problem with him fighting Wheeler Yuta and feuding with Wheeler Yuta. This is an in-between feud. It's with another uh, Blackpool Combat Club member. Obviously, his focus is on John Moxley. I'm okay with it. As long as MJF wins this match and hopefully wins it clean and further establishes himself as a legitimate threat and main eventer. That is the key to the entire thing. Because the problem with MJF is he almost never wrestles. And when he does, he almost always wins by cheating. His last match, well, I guess technically his last match he won because Stokely Hathaway brought down the briefcase, so that would be cheating. But the one before that, he lost. He got squashed by Wardlow. So this guy hasn't won anything, and yet he has the casino chip. So AEW really should, theoretically, take a couple months to establish him as a top-level guy in the ring, not just on the mic, before they do eventually strap him up. Because historically, AEW champions wrestle. And historically, MJF does not. That is a very wide gulf for them to cross. And I am curious to see how they do it. But so far, with him getting the match with Wheeler, that's a really good decision. It gets him back in the ring. I don't know how many TV matches he's had in AEW. It has to be fewer than on pay-per-view at this point. So that, to me, was a good decision. Uh, John Moxley fought Juice Robinson in an AEW World Championship Eliminator match. Juice got this match because he's one of only a few people to beat Mox recently. Juice attacked before the bell. Great aggressive action both ways here. Juice hit pulp friction, but was too slow to cover for a near fall. Mox came back with a regal knee stomps and an arm bar for an immediate submission as soon as he put the arm bar in. And yes, Mox did bleed again in the match. Uh, this was decent. It was actually kind of disappointing. It was great to see Juice on AEW, but... I wonder what the future holds for him because he is a free agent, but they kept mentioning he was with New Japan. The whole thing was weird. AEW definitely does not need him and the crowd could not have given a shit about him. It would have been nice if like once in a while someone actually won an Eliminator match. I think in three years of AEW, Eliminator challengers are over the entire time. A Hangman Page stormed down after the match for a face-off with Mox. From a suite, MJF said neither of them mattered because he might cash in his chip when they fight. Suddenly, Yuta appeared behind him, removing his black hoodie and getting a few shots in. They fought literally over a row of fans until security, some of whom Yuta punched, dragged them away. This was well done. It made Yuta look ferocious, got me interested in their match. I do think it's interesting that he and Eddie Kingston beat up security 
And it doesn't seem like there's any repercussions for that. There probably should be. It really does sound also now like the casino chip is going to follow the same rules as the Money in the Bank briefcase. And I gotta say, that's a massive disappointment to me because it's just straight up jacking a WWE gimmick. And it seems to be a pretty convenient change made by AEW just now because MJF happens to hold the chip. This is never how it was utilized previously. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. I'm gonna hold the the deep criticism until we see how it is cashed in, how it is used, you know, the booking of the entire segment and what happens. But as of right now, I'm pretty damn disappointed by the entire thing, I do need to say. Uh, During Rampage Grand Slam, Chris Jericho planned a championship celebration for Dynamite. Daniel Garcia kept trying to get his attention because he had something to tell him, but Jericho said they would handle it on Wednesday. So on Dynamite, JAS came out in purple velvet suits, all matching. Luigi Primo was back in the ring, flinging dough. Parker emulated Roman Reigns, saying, appreciate us. Uh, Jericho's new nickname is the Ocho, a straight up rip from Dodgeball. Jericho put himself over as the future of Ring of Honor. Then he put Garcia over too, giving him a bucket hat as a gift, a purple bucket hat. Garcia put it on, or I should say Jericho put it on. Garcia then took it off, threw it on the floor. He punched Primo for no reason whatsoever. And then Jericho cut him off. Jericho asked, hey, sports entertainer or pro wrestler? Fans chanted for the latter. Brian Danielson entered to support Garcia and give him the option. Jericho said Garcia does what Jericho wants. Garcia turned the table, suggesting I could do this, I could do that. I could team with Brian Danielson against Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara. 2.0 then screamed at him for like changing sides or disrespecting them. I couldn't really tell. And then Brian challenged Menard to a match. I just, I don't understand why this wasn't the moment. Maybe Garcia missed his spot, but he didn't say he was leaving JAS. He didn't say he was joining BCC. The crowd was hot as hell for this entire thing, especially once Brian came out. But it's difficult not to contrast this from a very similar opening segment we got from SmackDown this week. Whereas that one was executed clearly and perfectly, this one just ended without a climax. Garcia didn't say he was leaving. He didn't punch Jericho in the face or tear off his suit or storm out or put on a BCC shirt or anything like that. He did mention a potential tag team match, but he said it as if it was a suggestion or a thought. It was just incredibly odd. And this is from someone who likes the storyline of Garcia being stuck between the two worlds. But at this point, it's shit or get off the pot, and this storyline is constipated. So we had Danielson against Menard. The match starts, and everyone except Parker is gone from ringside. Claudio Castagnoli came down to literally carry him backstage. Danielson hit the psycho knee and the label lock for the win. I just sat there kind of dumbfounded at this. It felt like I was missing something from the entire segment. That's the best way I can put it. Claudio just lifting and carrying Angelo away. I did think that was hysterical. It was probably the highlight of the entire thing. Uh, In the main event, we had Jericho against Bandito for the Ring of Honor Championship. There was a cool 60-second delayed vertical suplex spot in the middle of the match, and it was amazing that the director missed the actual suplex with a cut. Like, (laughs) they're standing there for all that time, and he missed the actual moment. Uh, Bandito did Eddie Guerrero's frog splash. Jericho caught him flying with a code breaker. Bandito did a Hercarana off the ring apron, sunset flip powerbomb, and crucifix bomb. He busted open his mouth or nose, which created an actually really cool look because he was wearing an all-white mask with a big red patch suddenly in the middle. It looked like a white and red version of Rorschach from like Watchmen, basically. Uh, Jericho came back with Walls of Jericho, but Bandito took him off the top rope with an insane avalanche moonsault crossbody slam. 
He caught Jericho with an X knee, basically a modified go to sleep, and followed with the 21-plex, a flipping German suplex off Jericho's back for a false finish. Jericho poked Bandito in the eyes and pulled the mask down over his eyes. Still, Bandito nearly won with an inside cradle. Jericho kicked him in the face and put him in the lion tamer as Bandito tapped. He couldn't find where the ropes were, so he couldn't even make an attempt to save himself. Jericho, after the bell, said he would desecrate Ring of Honor and destroy its legacy. He challenged Danielson to an ROH title match in Canada, then hit the ROH ring announcer with Judas Effect, ending the show to booze. Holy shit did Bandito show out here. I always knew he was great, but seeing him go that hard with a 51-year-old Jericho was awesome. And credit to Jericho for being able to keep up with him for this match. It was the match of the night. What was a relatively poor in-ring night overall? This was the best one by far. AEW also did a good job here explaining why Bandito deserved a title match. It made complete sense. It still didn't change the fact that I already mentioned Mox against Juice. Didn't change the fact that two of the three big matches on the show included non-AEW talent, but I did appreciate the effort nonetheless. This was also booked well before the hurricane happened too. So AEW's completely transparent company email that Tony Khan tweeted out didn't play into the reasons for this match or the other one happening. But it was super entertaining and a great main event and dynamite. Even though Jericho's gimmick is kind of grating to me, it's a bit eye-rolling given the focus on mocking WWE, making him champion of a company that's all about wrestling in its purest form when he's a sports entertainer in gimmick and having him try to destroy it from the inside out. It's really smart booking. I could definitely see Danielson beating him for the title. And if not him, I've already mentioned previously, Garcia would make sense as we've discussed. That would be a very solid option here. Okay, I'm gonna need a drink of water for this one. All right, Soraya spoke for the first time saying she will create change in the AEW women's division. This is a direct quote. I was the revolution here and I'm going to be the revolution because I am the revolution. Direct quote. Fans chanted, this is your house. She called AEW her house. Then she acted as if she was improvising and called out the women's division. Tony Storm, Athena, and three other faces walked out. Soraya said Storm is finally being utilized to her full potential and their best champion. Britt Baker's crew and Penelope Ford interrupted. She said she put her neck on the line for AEW, and unlike Soraya, hers is strong enough to handle it. Soraya said Britt rhymed with shit and got bleeped. My eyes rolled so far back that I saw the back of my skull. Uh, Baker talked about Storm aligning with problematic people and herself being the victim of a conspiracy. She was so boring and loopy on the mic that fans started chanting, Jamie Hayter. Baker put over Serena Deeb saying she would take the title off Storm. Soraya then said she had a boss who finally listens to her and Tony Khan decided to make it a lumber match and the fans barely gave a shit. As the saying goes, this whole thing went over like a fart in church. It was a cluster. No one got over from this and the crowd was dead for it. Paige was extremely competent on the mic in WWE. I have no idea what this was supposed to be from Soraya. Was it because she was scripted there and she's not here? Uh, There's so much to say. And it starts with me recognizing that I called out exactly what this was going to be when she debuted at Grand Slam. AEW is trying to use Soraya as the catalyst to suggest now women's wrestling is going to be okay in our company. And yet the women were once again relegated to the same part of the show with a single match. As always, yes, technically there was this promo segment before it. Double segment, same area. Beyond that, Storm, the interim champion, 
was second fiddle in this entire thing to Soraya. Baker did have a couple good lines, but her promo completely fell apart in the second half. Like, I literally yawned during it. And then you have the hysterical, let's bring out the women's division from Soraya, yet only five women who matter and a couple jobbers walk out. This was also the second appearance where Soraya didn't touch anyone. She didn't talk about wrestling. She didn't talk about winning the title or anything of consequence. I mean, that really makes it seem like she's in AEW as some type of authority figure and not a wrestler. Otherwise, why is she being revered in this way? Because she had a bit of success in WWE? The whole thing to me was just yikes. And it was really a situation where they should have clarified her role and gotten the pop if she is going to wrestle or if she's not, explain her purpose there and what she hopes to achieve besides being the revolution over in AEW. And, you know, let me say one more thing here because I'll probably regret it if I don't. Soraya taking shots at WWE in her promo was the height of fucking absurdity. WWE did everything it possibly could for her, her life, and her career. She was signed after just one year in Shimmer. She beat AJ Lee for the Divas title on Raw the night she was called up while she was still the NXT champion. By the way, that was on the Raw after WrestleMania 30. She was made the youngest women's champion in WWE history on that night. They featured her as one of the top women in the division during her entire tenure. They paid for her medical bills. They kept her employed through both neck surgeries. They kept paying her and stood beside her despite two major personal controversies, especially given they're a publicly traded company. You know what I'm talking about in both cases. Not only that, they actively tried saving her by separating her from her boyfriend and then later firing that boyfriend when she still couldn't figure it out. She failed drug tests. Later, they offered to pay for her rehab when she admitted to having a problem. They gave her a full segment on Raw to announce her entering retirement. They tried using her on TV as a non-wrestler, and yes, they definitely should have done a better job with that, but they tried. And they kept her on a Legends contract all this time and never released her despite all of the cuts they made during the pandemic and her not doing anything besides the backstage show, which, by the way, was paid separately via Fox. And they did all of this while in her WWE contract, she was probably being paid more than many of the other wrestlers, especially the women who were released. Oh, wait, I almost forgot. WWE produced an entire fucking movie about her life starring Florence Pugh with The Rock attached as a producer and someone who made a cameo in the show. What the hell does she have to be sour about? Vince McMahon not listening to a couple booking ideas that she had? Spare me. This woman wrote an entire letter in the Players' Tribune putting over WWE for how well they treated her. And then she turns around and does this on TV? This entire thing was abysmal. And Soraya should be ashamed of herself for falling right into the AEW company line. If there is anyone in AEW coming over from WWE who should have stayed away from shitting on WWE, it's her. Let Storm say her shit. Let Athena do her bullshit because they weren't used well or whatever. Meanwhile, they were both employed for a long time and Storm left on her own accord, even though it seemed like they were about to start using her on SmackDown. Let them do that shit. She should have been above it from a standpoint of knowing what they did for her. This was 
pathetic. It was childish. And it honestly, there's a lot of reasons people may not like Soraya. This to me added on top of the pile of them. And I just, I couldn't believe what I heard. The segment was awful, truly terrible. This was the cherry on top of the shit Sunday on the entire thing. Her saying and doing those things, incomprehensible. Uh, we had a women's championship match, uh, the interim women's championship match. Storm defending against Deeb, as I mentioned. Soraya joined commentary. Shivani and Taz said she's already changed the entire women's division. How? By making a lumberjack match? Get the fuck out of here. Deeb countered Storm with a really nice falling crossbody uh, off the ropes and stretched her on the mat with some good wrestling. Storm came back with a hip attack and Storm zero for a false finish. Then she had an avalanche pile driver for the win in 11 minutes. Good wrestling here, which makes sense because guess what? These are the two best women wrestlers in the company right now. And it was the right time to do this match given the circumstances of Soraya's promo and what they were trying to do. It was explained previously, but not on Dynamite, that Deeb got this match because she did not take the fall in the Fatal 4-Way at Grand Slam. And I was fine with that. It got plenty of time. They were allowed to do a lot of nice stuff. I will say though, I never want to see an avalanche pile driver ever again. Men, women, AEW, WWE, I don't care. It is way too dangerous and completely unnecessary for a TV title match like this. The wrestling was good. Somehow, Soraya was even worse on commentary than she was in the ring. And you know what? She also tweeted something after the show. She said this, On a good note, I'm so proud of the women yesterday. Not only did they get more than five minutes to have a match, it was the first ever lumberjack match. A woman on commentary and a good portion of the roster being showcased. That's a win. This is revisionist horseshit history. Yes, AEW has suffered on numerous shows by only giving the women one match that's four or five minutes. I just called it out on Rampage Grand Slam. It was ridiculous that they did it. But we have talked about matches, women's matches from AEW on this show on every single episode of the podcast because they do one per episode. Segments with what I'd call real matches are usually eight to 12 minutes, just like this one. There has been plenty of good women's wrestling in AEW. It's just not consistent enough and the women aren't booked well. Again, these were the two best women in the company. So of course, when you put them in the ring, it's gonna be a good match and they're gonna get 11 minutes. Calling out a lumberjack match as a positive change is asinine. She was awful on commentary, so that wasn't a positive. And there's no chance in hell the women that walked out were, quote, a good portion of the roster being showcased. Half of them did nothing. Totally dumb statement to put herself over on Twitter. You know, look, the proof is in the pudding here, okay? If the AEW women's division improves, great. It's not gonna be because of Soraya. It's gonna be because Tony Khan realized, hey, finally, after three years, I'm doing a really shitty job with the women. If they let her take credit for it, that's fine, but it needs to actually improve before they begin taking credit. This segment and this match wasn't an improvement because the segment was absolute dog shit and the match was as good as many AEW women's matches we've already seen. So please don't insult my freaking intelligence here. Uh, the acclaimed celebrated their championship win with a taped interview with Billy Gunn backstage. He said, next week is National Scissoring Day. Keith Lee stepped up angry and depressed. He criticized Gunn for interfering and costing him and Swerve the titles. So AEW followed up on this monumental title win for fan favorites by keeping them away from fans on a live broadcast. I, I just couldn't imagine it. There was a report that Swerve was forced to stay home due to the hurricane. I hope he and his family are okay. That doesn't mean the acclaimed, who have nothing to do with Swerve now that they've won the titles, couldn't have gone out in front of the live crowd and gotten a huge reaction. 
Acclaimed said they'd be on Rampage, but Dynamite is the show watched by twice as many people each week. How the hell do you not let these guys celebrate their win with a promo or a match? Just get them in front of the damn crowd. I couldn't believe it. Uh, Andrade family office was all yelling at each other. Jose told Private Party to shape up or ship out because they were the source of all the angst. Hardy said to Private Party their hug on Rampage felt right. He was better for their career. And this time, if they gave him a chance, he would do it right. He asked them to get out of their contracts. Definitely interested in seeing where this goes. I enjoyed the tease in the Battle Royal. Andrade just seems to be in this endless vortex where everything he does repeats for weeks on end. I don't even understand why this faction still exists. Now that Roosh is there, it's endlessly frustrating. There was a part of me that kind of wondered if this storyline with Hardy and Private Party is like a tongue-in-cheek way of like Hardy almost being the Triple H and trying to like hug the talent that got released or is no longer with him and saying, hey, don't forget, it was better with me, come back. I, if they did that, that's a really cool tongue-in-cheek reference and it's not blatant. So I actually loved it. If it's not and it's a coincidence, then they really should have thought about that and made it a tongue-in-cheek reference because it would have been pretty cool that way. And lastly here, Ricky Starks won a squash match with Rochambeau in one minute. Literally, that's all that happened. I could not understand why they put this on Dynamite. He didn't get to cut a promo, exercising his demons from Hobbs or anything like that. Let this man talk. Why has it been multiple weeks now where Ricky Starks has been on TV without a mic in his hand, cutting a three, four, five minute promo in the center of the ring? That is what he does best. Let the man shine. I just do not understand it. All right. That was it from this week in AEW, of course, this week in NXT as well. We did have a lot to discuss on today's show. I appreciate all of you being with me for it. Please do not forget here with the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We... We're all about the five here. So head on over to Apple Podcasts on Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings. Please, on Apple, take a little bit of time. Leave a review as well. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And do not forget to join us next week where we will be back. Same bat time, same bat channel with your latest AEW and NXT show. Of course, between now and then, next Tuesday, we will have your WWE Extreme Rules Ultimate Preview. And yes, next Saturday, we will have your WWE Extreme Rules Instant Analysis. So if this is your first time listening, welcome to the party, pals. And please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and get all of that great content next week. Thank you all for listening. With all of that said, this is now the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.